Hey there, welcome to night school. We're doing a two-a-day here, and it feels like a good day to do a two-a-day, given that tomorrow's going to be an electricity bath. Tomorrow, November 3rd, is going to be a great electricity bath, and it might go on for a while, as they're saying. I don't really know what to say about that. I don't know what the duration of this electricity bath is going to be, but it's going to be buzzing. People are going to be buzzing. You know what every person is going to think about. And you have to appreciate that. You have to appreciate those days, those moments in time where you know exactly what everybody is thinking. Or feeling, for that matter. Because they're going to be anxious. They're going to be buzzing. They're going to be in the same electricity bath as everybody else. And that's something you can appreciate. I mean, one of my goals in life is to learn how to convert anxiety into a source of actual electricity, to power a house. You think about solar panels. Well, if things go my way, people are going to look at solar panels and it's going to be quaint. People are going to look at solar panels and think, people used to think they they could rely on the sun's power. (laughs) You know, now... Look at the person with the solar panels. I guess they don't have any anxiety they can use to power their house. Uh, People are going to think that because uh, I'm going to be able to channel uh, channel anxiety into electricity. And uh, you're going to walk by some houses where the lights never go off. I walk by someone's house and be like, oh, uh, somebody's a little worried about something. The lights never go off. Oh, I noticed the light switches don't even work in your house, but the lights are on all the time. So I'm going to diagnose you with severe anxiety. I can just tell. Oh, yeah. Never, uh, never bring Billy over to our house for a sleepover. His anxiety causes the lights to be on all night. My goal, though, is to convert anxiety into electricity. And tomorrow would be a great day. Tomorrow would be a plentiful day if I were able to figure that out because it's going to be a a real electricity bath all day. And I'm not doing an episode. I've already decided I'm not doing an episode tomorrow. I've got a lot to do. I have a job interview in the morning, actually, through the phone Not a big deal or anything, but it's part of the electricity bath. When I learned that that was the morning they had scheduled it, I was like, that's perfect. That's perfect. It's a perfect day to have a job interview is the great electricity bath. Because, of course, that'll get you buzzing. A job interview will always get you buzzing. And in this case, I'm not particularly anxious about it. But uh, it, it's perfect for the big day. It's perfect for the big day. It does feel that way, though. Uh, but yeah, I'm just going to... I'm looking forward to being an observer in the coming days. You know, I don't want to make any commitments because I very well might turn the mic on. Actually, my mic doesn't have an on or off switch, but uh, I might plug the mixer in. I might plug the mixer in. Actually, no, I mean, things are going to be, things are, this is how it's going to work. I'm going to figure this out through this mixer. This show is actually going to play a role in my invention, in my ability to convert anxiety into electricity. It's going to be done through mixers, it's going to be done through audio mixers. You're going to plug the mixer into your body, you're going to stick the, the mixer uh, plug into your eye. That's how it's all going to work. This is how I'm going to figure it out. Not only am I going to invent this, I'm able to prophesize right now how it's going to happen. But no, I don't want to make any commitments like, I'm not doing any episodes for days. And then tomorrow, sure enough, I'm like, I'm doing an episode live from the electricity bath. I don't want to make any commitments, but yeah, I don't see myself doing one right now. And I'm, I, I plan on doing a lot of observation more than, you know, more than any talking. I'm hoping I have very little to say. That's always my hope. My hope is that I, I always have very little to say. 
doesn't always work out. But yeah, you know, the episode earlier, I was talking about this idea of restraint, resistance, lowercase r, resistance with a lowercase r. That's the kind of resistance I like. I don't like resistance with a capital R, with a backwards capital R. We're the resistance. When people say that, when people call themselves the resistance, I see that written in Toys R Us letters with a backwards R. But the idea of just resisting an urge, and in this case, resisting the urge to invest yourself emotionally in a certain outcome. And it was funny because that's what I was talking about in the episode earlier today. And then as soon as I was done, I, I was looking at something on my phone and I follow this account that is based mainly around Hindu scripture. It's basically, yeah, it's, I would say it's a, a Hindu-oriented account on Instagram. And they share a lot of scripture, different things, excerpts. And sure enough, they included a quote from the Bhagavad Gita that talked about not investing in success or failure, but doing your duty regardless of the outcome. And that fit perfectly what I was talking about. And of course, I referenced the Bhagavad Gita earlier. And that's hardly a synchronicity. I would not consider, oh my God, it's so coincidental. I follow this account about Hindu scripture because I'm interested in Hindu scripture. And I was talking about Hindu scripture. And then I looked at the account of Hindu scripture and they were talking about one of the most famous Hindu scriptures ever. It's just a synchronicity, you know. I know I'm doing a lot of obnoxious voices here, but no, hardly a synchronicity. Uh, just a, uh, just my interests lining up. Uh, but uh, yeah, it included that quote, which is about doing your duty regardless of success or failure, not investing in the outcome of success or failure. And you think about the idea of doing your duty, which is your specific role in the process. What is your specific role in a given process? What are you supposed to do? And for that matter, what can you do? And you think about, I mean, the most obvious example is team sports, where what is the, you're on offense. What does the team want to do? Oh, we want to score a touchdown or a first down for that matter. We want to score though. That's the ultimate goal. We want to get a touchdown. If you're an offensive lineman, that's your goal. You're a part of that team whose goal is to get a touchdown, but what's your specific role in the process? What is your duty as an offensive lineman? It's to block a certain person. So that's what you do, and that's what's going to help get that touchdown is you focusing on your specific duty. You're not worried about where the running back is running. That's up to the running back. That's up to the running back. Your goal in the immediate is not whether the running back scores a touchdown or not. Your goal is to block that guy. Your duty is to block that guy in front of you, and you might have to improvise. The thing about having a duty is that situations come up where you have to improvise, if there's a fumble, well, now you have to worry about jumping on the ball. Or if the other team intercepts the ball, you have to worry about tackling that guy. So it's not that your job is always going to be blocking, even though that's your duty. Something might come up and you have to improvise. But if you're doing your duty, your ability to improvise is going to be even greater. Specifically because you're not going to do anything that contributes to the failure. And you might fail anyway, but I think a way of looking at it would be if you do your duty, you can do more with the success and do more with the failure as well. And that might sound a little weird, doing something with the failure, but and this kind of fits into Napoleon Hill, who I've been talking about lately because I've been reading that book. But I mean, it's a self-help cliche, the idea of, oh, you're going to fail. You're going to fail a lot. And then you, you just got to fail over and over again before you succeed. Every success is built on a mountain of failure. There's that idea. And it's true, of course. But you have to be able to use those failures. And failures become useful when you do your duty, regardless of the outcome. You might be successful or you might fail, but a failure becomes useful to you if you were doing what you were supposed to do up to the point of failure. And because uh, otherwise you don't really know. I mean, basically, if you're not doing your duty, 
if you're not fulfilling your specific role in a given process, well, you're not going to really learn much except for the fact that you didn't do your duty. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. And in some way, the failure is probably a result of that. It's probably a result of you not doing your duty, other people not doing their duty. But if you do your duty, there's not going to be any guilt. You're not going to feel guilty about the failure. You might not like the failure, but you're not going to feel guilty about it. But you're going to know that, okay, I did everything I was supposed to do up to that point. So what else can I do? What else can I learn from this? Because I was doing all of the basics that I was expected to do, what can I do to strengthen that? Whereas if you weren't doing it at all, if you weren't doing your duty at all, if you weren't fulfilling your specific role in that process, you're not going to know how to improve because you weren't even doing the thing to begin with. You have to actually start doing it if you're going to know how to improve. And so in that way, you know, your failure is going to become more useful to you if you were doing what you were supposed to do. And it's funny that the Bhagavad Gita refers to this, the, the idea of doing your duty regardless of the outcome and specifically not emotionally investing yourself in that outcome because the U.S. military has the same approach where you have a specific role to do as part of your team. I mean, this is just universal. It's something that a lot of people have figured out in a lot of different places at a lot of different times. Um, but, uh, you know, that idea of your role in the process, what you're supposed to do in a given moment. And that doesn't mean you won't have to improvise. And you look at movies, the way movies portray this, where there's a cliche in movies, specifically action movies, where let's say a guy is an action hero and he's a military guy and he does something beyond his specific duty but in doing that, he saves the day. At the end of the movie, his commander comes up to him and says, uh, you know, uh, great job, Jack. Great job, Jack. But don't you ever do that again. Don't you ever think about doing something stupid like that again. You know, uh, that's a cliche in movies where the commander, the boss comes up to the guy. And even though the guy saved the day and he saved the day by doing something he wasn't assigned to do. His commander begrudgingly thanks him, but reminds him not to do that again because it's risky. I mean, you hear about people dying stupid deaths and you never know the real story. Yeah, sometimes people just do something stupid. But it could also be somebody was trying to do something for the greater good and they took a risk and they failed. And we'll never know. We'll never see things through their eyes. I don't know. But in movies, you know, because movies have a successful outcome, it's what we go see them for. You know, the hero who strays from his duty succeeds. But there's also this reminder not to do it again from whoever. Because it's not just his commander who will say it. We also see where someone's wife, some other character, a friend, someone will be like, don't you ever do that again. But thanks. And uh, you see it play out in football, too. Every once in a while, a player will do something he's not supposed to do. And it ends up winning the, the game for the team. And sometimes they'll interview the coach afterward and he'll be like, well, you know, we didn't tell him to do that, but we're sure glad he did today. But you don't want to get in the habit of that because when you take risks like that, you're not going to succeed most of the time unless you're superhuman. And it's kind of funny talking about this. Like, you know, I talk about this stuff, not being somebody who's some exemplar of success. You know, I'm, I'm still figuring my life out. And there are people who only want to hear these kinds of things from somebody who is financially very successful or powerful. But personally, I learn more from people who aren't, who nonetheless pass on certain ideas. I mean, I think about one of the people I know who has had the most profound impact on me in a number of ways, going back to when I was a teenager. And a lot of people would consider him just a crazy, I mean, at, at times transient 
you know, he always manages to have a place to live, it seems like, but he's an old friend of mine who's, you know, done, done jail time. He's gotten a lot of, in a lot of trouble. He's doing well now, but he's a guy who, yeah, he's had some issues and a lot of people would look at him on paper and think that this guy is just a freak. And he's that too, you know, he's definitely got his own, his own freakish things going on. But I also just think about some of the things he's shared with me, true insight into what this whole thing is. I don't want to narrow it down because this guy's just passed on a lot of knowledge to me since I've known him, but he's not somebody who's living in a McMansion driving a Lamborghini. And on the surface, I mean, I hate to make the comparison even, but it's like almost, you know, a Socrates, Socratesian sort of thing where it's like this guy who I think has the wisdom he does because he's just kind of wandered the streets and he's obviously he was obviously born with a certain disposition but I don't personally look to insanely successful people for inspiration um traditionally successful I do look at people who have a certain insight or who have done you know, something maybe creatively or, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I reject people who are traditionally successful, but I guess what I mean is like, I don't have a strict set of parameters, but in doing this show, I do have this sense, I guess I'm very self-aware of the fact that I'm not some highly successful person. You know, I feel that I, I do the things that I want to do and I, I kind of figure out how they work, but at no point am I like, if you listen to me, you'll be calling me in a year with a million dollars tucked behind your ear. You know, I never want to come across that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think there are just some universals here. And I like thinking about them. I like thinking about these sorts of universals. And one of those is not investing in the outcome, but doing your duty. Doing what your specific role entails. And, of course, improvising when you have to. But even then, if you're going to improvise, you still only have control over what you are doing. Like, if you're playing music and improvising, yeah, you're going to have to respond to what the drummer does, but you're still only controlling your guitar. And there may be some form of kind of symbiosis where you're all on the same page where your brains are linked, where there's some almost supernatural sort of connectivity going on. There's always that. Synergy. I think what you're talking about is synergy. Um, There's always that sort of thing, you know, that intangible element. But still, you're, at the end of the day, you're only worrying about what you are doing. You are responding. You are responding to what other people are doing, but you're still focused on your specific duty. And it can be hard to focus on that. Sometimes you have to resist. Lowercase r, resist. You have to show some restraint to keep doing your duty. I mean, if, you're guard, if your job is to guard the palace door and you hear a commotion, you might have the impulse. And I know there's a lot of people listening to this show and it's your job to guard a palace door. You know, I have a lot of palace guards listening to this show. And you guys are rule, man. I just want to give a shout out to all the palace guards. You guys are heroes. Um, all you palace guards, you guys are, oh man, thank a palace guard. Thank a palace guard today. But if you're a palace guard and you hear a commotion, you're going to have an urge to go check it out. And maybe you should. But then you're going to abandon your post And somebody might have caused that commotion so that somebody else, so that an assassin could sneak in through the door you were guarding and kill the king. And so your ultimate goal is to protect the king. But your duty is to guard the door. And you might get so distracted, you know, by a commotion, you might think, oh, I got to go see what that commotion is. That commotion could be somebody trying to kill the king. Meanwhile, the person who's actually going to kill the king was waiting for you to go check out the commotion so they could go kill the king. Kill the king. And so you should have stayed by the door. Maybe. But maybe there's a situation where you should have gone and checked out the commotion. 
but your duty was to guard the door. And if your kingdom is worth its uh, weight and salt, they would have somebody already in place who could check out the commotion, whose duty was to check out commotions. Therefore, you could stay by the palace door. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to consider, but there are situations where you have to improvise or you have to take a risk. And that's, you know, what history is. You know, it's what your own life is in many ways. It's like you're always going to be weighing whether the risk is worth straying from what you're supposed to do. And that's where things like intuition come in handy. But I mean, people's intuition will get them killed too. It's not like it's perfect. But you got to resist it. You got to resist the urge to just uh, turn your head. Because that commotion might be a trick. Or it might be a pretty girl. Maybe you're a. Because that's a common thing. The palace guard, the guard who gets tricked by a woman. A woman seduces him from his post. I mean, I was thinking about this earlier. I went for a walk a little bit ago, and uh, a girl was jogging. And by a girl, I mean a young woman. And, you know, I'm not, yeah, I'm definitely not a hound. You know, I'm not somebody, I'm not, I'm not lecherous. I don't consider myself particularly lecherous. You know, I'm, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to women. And I've, you know, been involved with relatively few women, a fact that I'm proud of. And, uh, you know, but the thing is, it's really hard to not look at an attractive woman. It is really incredibly hard. And, uh, you got to resist it sometimes. Not that it's a horrible crime. Not that it makes you a predator to glance at a woman. But sometimes I think just as an act of self-restraint, as an act of discipline, you should just avoid doing it. Because there are people who are like the Tex Avery Wolf, the cartoon Tex Avery Wolf, who their eyes bulge out, they pop out of their skull, their tongue rolls down like a red carpet, Steam shoots out of their ears. You'll see people do that, especially at bars. And I've certainly felt that way before. But for the most part, you know, you don't have to look. Yet you feel this urge. You almost feel like you're going to be deprived of something. I mean, that's kind of how I felt when I was on my walk. Because I saw this girl jogging up ahead. She was jogging in my direction. And I didn't stare at her. I, I barely got a look. But I could just tell she was hot. You know, I could just tell from far away, and I was like, I'm not going to look at her. And then even after she passed, like right after she passed, I felt that urge to turn my head and get a glance, but I was like, I'm not even going to do that. Because with my luck, I would probably turn my head, and she would be, she would have turned her head behind her to make sure I didn't do a U-turn to follow her, and we'd probably make some sort of weird animal magnetism eye contact. But no, I think it's good to have discipline when it comes to things like that, because Guys know, guys know what I mean. If you're a guy, if you're a palace guard listening to this, you know exactly what I mean. It is just very hard to not look. And again, it doesn't make you bad for looking. You know, I think there's a certain subtlety to checking women out where you learn how to do it subtly. You learn how to check women out, you know, in the periphery of your vision. It's an, it, I'm not going to call it an art. But I think it's you, you learn how to do it without being because, you know, it's not even just that you don't want the girl to see you doing it. You don't want anybody to see you doing it. I don't want anybody to catch me looking. But it is something where you have to use resistance. You have to use restraint. Because even today, I just felt like, man, I really want to look. <laughs> I want to look. And then after I didn't, after I did not look. It's not like I was truly deprived of something. It's not like I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I wanted to look. It's not like I had anything to grieve over. But it is funny how you have to use restraint in that situation. And, uh, you know, I, I still don't even know what she looked like. I wouldn't even be able to describe her. But you can... I mean, that's, and I, but I think the point I'm getting at here is just that you learn how to use restraint in little situations like that. Not necessarily situations where you don't want to stare at a girl, 
But uh, just any situation like that, I mean, it could be dietary. Because, I mean, you get it's any kind of sensory experience, for one, like eating. Where I've always been a person where I can go all day without eating. And I force myself to do it just because I work out and I lift weights. And, I, you know, I obviously don't want to, you know, I want to maintain and even build muscle and that kind of thing. But it's at night where I get that urge. Nighttime is where after dinner hours, you know, it's after dinner time, I get the urge to eat where I'm settled in, you know, maybe it's a few hours before I'm going to go to bed. And that's when I want to just go to the pantry. And nothing is completely satisfying at that hour either. I've never been a midnight snacker. Like I don't wake up and eat. That's weird. But before bed, that's when I have the strongest urge to eat for whatever reason. And that's also the worst time to eat. Going to bed with a full stomach sucks. Even when you do intermittent fasting, you know, because I, I do intermittent fasting, and I that just means I'm going to have to wait longer tomorrow, which sucks. It just sucks. You know, and sometimes that's fun. Sometimes it's fun to overeat late at night and then wait until, like, the next night to eat. It's kind of a fun sort of... Uh, I don't know, you almost feel like a a bear getting ready for hibernation or something when you load up and then fast. But for the most part, I don't like doing that. I I do not like eating late. And it can, you can really feel like you're being deprived of something when you don't eat and you feel the urge to go to the pantry. But the reality is you're not. I mean, it's not like you're starving yourself. You've been eating all day. You've had all your meals, but you have this urge to go to the pantry. It's almost an automatic feeling. But you show resistance. Just like you don't crane your head to look at every woman, you got to show some resistance. And sometimes after enough time, you kind of forget about it. You kind of forget that you had this urge. And you have to remember that you're not losing anything. You're not losing anything. You're just... and, And in some ways, that's, you know, you have to remember that you are doing something for a reason or not doing something for a reason. You know, when it comes to your diet, you have made a conscious decision to not overindulge yourself, especially late into the night, and that's going to benefit you tomorrow. It's going to benefit you all around. So you have to remember that. You have to have a sense of purpose. And that's missing from a lot of people is that sort of purposelessness often lends itself to overindulgence. Whereas I think if you have a purpose, and it's not like my purpose in life is to have a healthy diet. It's that my purpose in life requires a healthy diet. It benefits me. It benefits my purpose in life to have that healthy diet. It's not that the purpose is a healthy diet. And so that's important to remember too. The ways that I want to think, the way that I want to feel, and who I want to be is greatly impacted by my diet. Not to some, you know, I'm not super out there about it. I don't think that everything depends on that, but I have noticed the difference since I got into that sort of thing. Uh, I've noticed the difference since I started being very conscious about what I consume, when I consume it, how I consume it. I have noticed a difference in my life on multiple fronts. And so you have to have that in mind. You know, it's a process. And like that Bhagavad Gita quote, which I didn't recite, you know, perfectly because I don't have it on hand, but uh, basically it's about not investing in success or failure. It's investing in the process, in your duty. And you have to look at eating, you have to look at consumption as a process too. And when you look at it that way, you do have a role in that process. And even if an individual action you take is not the purpose, when you see that as part of the process that is your purpose, that gives you greater discipline, especially when you do more of it. And I don't know how checking out girls, I don't know how checking out girls has anything to do with this. I think it does, though. I mean, there's a reason why... Most spiritual practices recommend sexual restraint. 
You know, you don't have to get into the whole hair on your palms thing. But, uh, you know, there's a reason why... There's a reason why spirituality is often in conflict with masturbation, pornography, you know, things that I wouldn't, I would never tell anybody not to consume them, you know, but I I do believe there's a reason why, I mean, there's definitely reason to use caution. And if you're going to do it, do it consciously of what you're doing. Don't get in the habit of it. And that's very difficult for my generation who grew up with the internet. Uh, you know, it's use caution and be very aware of what you are doing. But I would say the same is true even for just checking out a woman. You know, that might seem very, uh, I don't know, that might seem extreme to think that why do I need to use discipline? Like as long as I'm not being a creep, which should be the the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal should be don't be a creep. But I think it's important to exercise a little restraint. And you're not going to be perfect. Like, I don't deprive myself entirely. You know, I mean, like, there are some times where I'm just like, I gotta look. I gotta look. There are times where I feel that way, and so I do. But I think, you know, especially in certain situations, I think trails are interesting. And I've learned a lot about being a man. And I've learned a lot about women from just being somebody who walks a lot, but specifically in wooded areas. I know I've told this story before, but an early lesson for me, like when I moved to the Olympia area, I started walking in the woods a lot because this is a very woodsy place. And inevitably, as a lone man, I would sometimes come across lone women, especially younger women. And I always make an effort to say hi to people, at least I, you know, now and again. Uh, it's, but it's, it's not natural for me. I'm not naturally the kind of person who says hi to strangers. So it takes a certain amount of effort. And what I found is that some people don't say hi back. Some of them are just jerks. But I noticed in particular that women, specifically younger women, will not say hi back. And at the time, it's not like I got mad. You know, it's not like I got, oh my, how dare you not say hi back. You know, it's not like I ever reacted outwardly in that way. But I remember quietly being offended. And again, this gets back to being emotionally invested in a certain outcome. Here I am saying hi to somebody and they don't say say hi back. So I get privately angry. And it had nothing to do with like some weird, like there was nothing. Uh, I wasn't angry because they were women not saying hi back, because the same happens with men, where if a man doesn't say hi back, I think, like, oh, what a dick. You know, but with women in particular, this was a lesson for me, because I had to realize, oh, they are terrified of me, because I am the scariest thing on the planet. I am the scariest thing on this planet. And they don't know, if, if they say hi back to me, I might try to engage them further, I might take that as some kind of green light. Of course, not saying hi to me could piss me off, you know. I mean, if I was a psycho, it could cause me to fly into an actual rage and not just quietly think, oh, she didn't say hi to me. But it was an important lesson for me because I realized, oh, they are terrified of me. They see a lone, grown man approaching, and that is the most terrifying thing on this planet. And one little decision on my part in that scenario could ruin their life I mean not getting away from like murder and stuff but it's like one little decision on my part I have the power in this situation as a man and one decision on my part could traumatize this person forever not even not even if you know I'm not even getting into the whole like assault thing I even just mean if I just did anything weird like even if I just you know, said the wrong thing, you know, that could really fuck up their entire experience. And uh, I just became very conscious of that. And it was a realization for me pretty early on. It wasn't like I spent months and years being like, well, why don't women say hi to me in the woods? You know, it's not like I did. I felt that way. Um, I realized this fairly early on where it was just, it was an epiphany for sure, where I was just like, oh, 
Women in particular are scared of me because I'm a grown man and that makes me the most terrifying thing in the world. And in fact, I can relate to it in my own way. I have never once been walking in the woods and seen a lone female approaching and thought, gee, I hope she doesn't attack me. I hope she doesn't attack me. I've never once thought that. Whereas even just being me, a physically fit man, if I see a lone guy up in the woods, especially if he has a certain demeanor, I mean, if he's, you know, got glasses and, uh, you know, a bubble vest and he's 120 pounds and drives and has like Subaru keys dangling out of his pocket, you know, I'm not going to be terribly afraid. But still, you never know. And if I see a lone man up ahead, especially if he looks at all sketchy in some way, I get into the mode. I get into the mode where I'm ready to defend myself. And that's me as a physically fit male who's hypervigilant and not terribly intimidated by most people. So the fact that I feel that way when I see a lone man up ahead, that is pretty telling as far as how women will perceive you if they see you in the woods or on the street. But I think the woods are a great example, and that's where I learned about this because I just became very aware of how I was perceived. Not because of anything I was doing to seem threatening. In fact, I did everything I could to seem non-threatening. But I realized not even that was enough. Because a predator will appear non-threatening. Predators camouflage themselves. And humans, human predators, use emotional and psychological camouflage, appearing friendly. So there was, I realized there was nothing I could do to reassure a woman in the woods that I'm not a predator, except not be a predator. Anything else, who cares? I realized that the only, th- the only job I have in this situation, it's not to say hi, it's not to appear non-threatening, although I continue to be that way. It's to simply not be what this woman fears. And fortunately, I have no desire to be what that woman fears. But I, I recognize that she can say hi to me and I will say hi back. But my job is to make a lot of space. If we're on a small trail, I'll even kind of, you know, I'll, I'll lean into the bushes in a way that's, you know, that makes it clear that one, I'm not hiding, but just like I'm getting out of her way. And uh, it was just, that was a lesson for me. And I've seen groups of women in the woods, and I've never once thought, oh God, are these women going to maul me? Are these women going to attack me? And I mean, maybe I'm jinxing myself here, and the next time I walk a trail, there's going to be a woman like sitting on a tree branch that jumps down and gouges my eyes. She's going to be like a wild animal. And I'm going to be like, this is what I get for thinking that women are harmless in the woods. Like, of course, there's a woman who could beat me up. This, is, this has nothing to do with me, not to give a disclaimer here, but this has nothing to do with saying, like, there's no women in the world who could ever beat me up. There's no women in the world who could ever be a threat to me. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that on average, you, I mean, not just on average, almost all of the time, you never have to worry about a woman. And my philosophy on this, too, is even if a woman attacked me in the woods, even if a woman killed me, I wouldn't take it personally. I wouldn't feel, you know, I, I would. it would be like getting killed by a wolf. I would feel the same way if a woman killed me in the woods as I would a wolf killing me. Not because I view women as animals, but I would just be like, oh, okay. I can't believe that. Like in my final dying thoughts, I would, I would just think, I can't believe that's how I died. I can't believe that it all came down to a wolf biting my throat. Or a woman gouging my eyes, you know. <laughs> it's like, I can't believe it all came down to this. Uh, whereas if a man killed me in the woods, knock on wood, no. Knock on wood, that's not going to happen. Um, but if a man were to attack me in the woods and I were to lose, I would feel like I actually lost some kind of competition. Not because I view all interactions with men as some kind of competition of manhood but I would actually feel like I lost a fight whereas if a woman beat me because I'm not one of these people who's worried about getting humiliated by a woman 
You know, I'm not worried about a woman beating me up. Like, if I got beat up by a woman, it's the same thing. Even if she didn't kill me. If a woman beat me up in public, I wouldn't be like, oh, nobody's going to think I'm a man no more. Because a woman beat me up. I wouldn't feel that way uh, about it at all. I'd just be like, wow, I can't believe a woman beat me up. I'd be almost impressed. I would just hope that it doesn't hurt. Because that's my approach to wild animals killing me. If a wild animal killed me, my only thought is I hope this isn't excruciating. If a bear mauled me, I just hope, I hope it kills me quick. I don't want this to be drawn out and painful. And I, that's how I would feel about a woman killing me. Is I would think, I just don't want this to be drawn out and painful. Beyond that, there's no ego issue. Whereas if it was a man, I would have a degree. It would It would be difficult for my ego to deal with that. Be like, I, I should have won. I should have won that fight. But anyway, you know, maybe I'm jinxing myself. And yeah, there's a woman who's just going to be like hiding up on a tree branch. And she's just going to dive down and just run up and just kick me square in the, you know, in the you know. And that's okay if it happens. If that's how I go, that's how I go. It's what I get for saying that I'm not afraid of women in the woods. But the point was is that... I completely understood why women were reluctant to say hi to me. And fortunately, I learned that lesson as a teenager. That every corner they turn and see a man up ahead, they don't know if that guy could ruin their life. And uh, I think, I don't necessarily think every single woman is thinking that, but deep down they know it. And so what's my job in that situation? Not ruin their life. And if we say hi to each other, we say hi to each other. But I only have one job. Again, I only have one duty. It's the Bhagavad Gita again, where my only duty is to not do something bad. To not scare that person. And if we say hi to each other, that's a success. That's a good interaction. If we don't, well, is that a failure? I wouldn't really consider it a failure. It's just unfortunate that that's the world we live in. But uh, I don't know. That was a big lesson for me early on. Not that I ever, you know, again, it's like not like I did anything ever. It's not like I ever reacted. It's not like a woman didn't say hi back and I screamed, how dare you? How dare you? It's not like that ever happened. But it was just uh, I had to learn how to deal with the feeling of, of being insulted and learn why maybe people were reluctant to say hi. But again, it comes down to investing in the outcome. You shouldn't say hi because you expect someone to say hi back. You should say hi because you have a desire to be friendly, to establish some sort of friendly common ground. If someone's not comfortable, or maybe they are a jerk. You know, if someone's not comfortable, or they're a jerk, or whatever their reason is, or non-reason, maybe they don't even know. But that doesn't matter. Your duty is to be a friendly, decent person. And the weird thing is, is that when someone doesn't say hi back, you almost have this impulse after that to be a jerk. Not necessarily to them, although that too, but you almost have this sudden, it's almost like you become them. Like you, oh, I I made the effort of saying hi to that person walking their dog, and they said nothing back to me. So now I'm going to be a monster to everybody. And that sounds silly, but people do that, where it's like, I'm going to become the opposite. I mean, it reminds me of school shooters and people like that who are craving love and acceptance, and when they don't get the love and acceptance they want, they decide to do the opposite. It's like, oh yeah, I'm I'm really desperate for the approval of my peers, and I'm not getting it, so I'm going to kill them. But that's insane, but it's common. Not school shootings themselves. I mean, granted, they happen. But uh, it's not that... uh, But you think about that impulse. Not everybody decides to shoot their peers because they're not getting acceptance from them. But uh, just that impulse to do the opposite. It's like you wanted this from people and they didn't give it to you. So now you're going to become the opposite and be nasty. And that can easily happen to you. 
if you're not aware of it. But you should recognize that your duty as a human being is to be decent. Your duty as a human being, your role in the process of being a human being is to just establish some kind of neutral ground, if nothing else, and to not expect anything beyond that, but to do what you can to reinforce that. Because you could be a person who just turns everything upside down everywhere you go. You know, you could be a jerk. And, uh, you know, you could be the one to initiate that. And plenty of people do that. But it's also your job to not let other people change the way you are. You know, you, you can't let other people change your own duty. Because they're not living up to their duty. Because they're not playing the role that they're supposed to play. Don't use that as an excuse to leave your post. You know, I, I know I gotta I gotta bring up this palace guard example again because I know I've got so many palace guards listening. But it's it's if you found out the palace guard on the balcony is is looking at a girl somewhere, so he's not minding his post. Is that an excuse so that now you can not mind your post? Oh, he's doing it too. No, you know your role, and you know what you're supposed to do. Just because somebody else isn't doing it doesn't mean that you should, even though you can. And I think that's where restraint comes in again, where it's not restraint if you don't have a choice. You know, you think about incels, or as I call them, insoles. Insole. Behind every incel is an in, inside of every incel is an insole. Now, people are cruel to incels, and I've been very defensive of them on here. In the past, I know I've talked, I don't know if I've been very defensive, but I've, I've been, I, I feel that I've defended incels, you know, not the nasty behavior some of them show, but I, I've defended just the idea because it's very cruel. The whole idea of incels, calling them incels, the treatment of incels, it's cruel. But it's like if you're an incel and you become a monk and you renounce, you know, sexual conduct you're not making a choice. Like, you're coming up with an excuse, basically, but it's not like you're actually renouncing something because you never actually had the option. And uh, it's like saying, oh, I'm never eating chocolate cake again. <laughs> I'm never eating chocolate cake again. Meanwhile, there's no chocolate cake even available. There's no chocolate cake even in your world. You know, it's like uh, you went to a party, you went to a birthday party where they were serving chocolate cake and they ate it all before you got there because you were late. And now you're going around saying, oh, uh, yeah, I didn't give in to the temptation to eat chocolate cake. Meanwhile, you never even had the option. Which, yeah, you're right at the end of the day that you didn't eat the chocolate cake and your body is probably thanking you for it. But on a discipline level, you didn't do anything. You didn't learn how to resist chocolate cake. And it's only when chocolate cake is available to you that you can actually renounce it and resist it, that you can actually restrain yourself from eating chocolate cake. And uh, it's the same thing plays out with, I think, sexual restraint. Where, you know, if women don't like you, if women aren't even remotely attracted to you, you can't really call yourself celibate. I mean, you can't, I mean, technically you are, but it's like you can't claim that you decided to be celibate if that's not what you actually want. And you might be better off for it. You might accept it. It might not have been a choice originally, but maybe you've accepted it over time. I'm not saying that can't happen. But if the option isn't even available to you, discipline plays no role at all. Restraint plays no role at all. Like like if I had gone on that walk today and there was no jogger, there was no hot jogger. Hey, it's a hot jogger. 
If there was no hot jogger, I couldn't be like, guess what? I didn't look at the hot jogger today. It's because there was no hot jogger. I didn't even have the option. I didn't even have the option of looking at that hot jogger, but I, I saw her coming today and I made the decision to not look at her. And I want a medal for this. I want a reward. No, um, but it's that sort of situation where, you know, if it's not even an option available to you, you're not actually cultivating anything. You're not developing anything. You're not strengthening yourself. And so using resistance, using restraint, developing discipline involves temptation. Not that you necessarily feel an impulse or a compulsion to give in, but it needs to be there. And that was sort of an approach I took to quitting drinking where I wanted to be around it pretty early on. And that's not an approach that everybody should take. I would say if you're somebody who wants to quit drinking, you should listen to people who have expertise because I only know what I need. I can only preach what I need. But as part of my own discipline, I didn't want to be afraid of alcohol at all. And it helped that I was mentally done with it. It helped that I was completely done with alcohol. I'd gotten everything that I ever needed out of it. But I got invited to my friend. She was a bartender. And she invited me as her plus one to her work Christmas party about two weeks after I quit drinking. And I'd already committed. I knew I was done. But here I am going to a bar Christmas party. And it was a fancy bar. And I knew there would be, I mean, you can imagine what a a bar Christmas party is like. It was closed. There was booze all over. All kinds of wonderful booze. I was a hard alcohol guy. They had all kinds of wonderful hard alcohol. And I went and... You know, there was one moment where everybody was doing shots before we were going to another bar. And that was the only moment where I felt any temptation. The rest of it was just sort of like, okay, they're all drinking. And this is a whole new experience for me. I looked at it as this is a whole new experience where I'm not drunk. But there's something kind of cool about this. Like there's something cool about being able to leave at midnight and not be too drunk. There's something cool about being able to drive my car home. You know, there was a freedom to that, and it was a new experience for me because I was always the person in those situations who was wasted by midnight. But it was good to be around it, and I made it a point to go to bars with friends in the first months after I quit drinking, and I eventually got bored. Eventually, I was like, okay, yeah, there's really no reason for me to be doing this. But that was a better feeling than feeling like, I can't go to a bar because I'm just going to order a beer, you know, it's better than that feeling, but again, it's not for everybody. It's I, I cannot recommend it for everybody because many people would probably feel the need to get a drink, and it does feel awkward because I'm not going to be one of these people who turns around and says, going to bars when I was sober was so much more fun than when I drank. No, it wasn't. Going to bars sober was way less fun than when I drank. But it was important to do it, to know what it was like, and to know that I could be around it. And I don't take that for granted. You know, I really don't take that for granted. I'm not saying this to be high and mighty, like, oh, look at me. I can go to bars and not drink. Because I'm always conscious of that cartoon rake and stepping on it and it just breaking my nose. That cartoon rake that I step on and the handle just flies up and hits me in the nose and it shatters my nose into a million tiny little pieces and the doctors can never put my nose back together again. I'm always worried about that. So you never want to be too confident, but you do want to be confident. You never want to be overconfident, but you do want to develop confidence And one way of doing that is to be around things that could potentially tempt you. If you quit drinking, you want to reach a point where you can be around alcohol or be in a bar. For me, I wanted to do it right away. For me, I, you know, two weeks later, I was in 
the most tempting situation I've been in, given how soon it was after I quit drinking and how much free, expensive, hard alcohol was just in front of me. And nobody would have judged me. You know, I hadn't even announced to anybody that I quit drinking. So nobody was... I told them I wasn't drinking, but nobody knew that I had officially quit. So nobody would have batted an eye if I just decided to have a shot. And it was important, though, to have that temptation there. And I think that strengthened me for the long haul. And, uh, you know, some people... I mean, I like... Like I was saying, I've always been conservative with women, and I've never had a desire to be involved with a lot of women. So that is, that's a pretty easy thing to not give into for me. But it is difficult for me to like not, you know, you want to look. And you got to give yourself that right sometimes. But it's like, I, I just don't think you should be some swiveling head who's looking at every pretty woman. I think you should have some restraint and discipline when it comes to that. Um, and then, you know, it just plays out in every other part of your life. Discipline is interlocking. Every individual discipline that you develop interlocks with every other discipline you have in your life. They reinforce each other. They fit together. And it's really just a matter of how much time you have. But so many disciplines aren't outward activities. Yeah, there are outward disciplines like working out, your art, your anything you do, your job, anything you do requires discipline. And there are a lot of outward disciplines, and those eat up time. If those are activities, those eat up time. But there are so many disciplines that simply involve not giving in, that are simply a matter of restraining yourself from giving in to something that, at least in your mind, has some sort of detrimental effect that somehow undermines your own purity of vision, whatever it is, your purpose. And those, you know, are, are some of the most important. Those are some of the strongest chords when it comes to this interlocking discipline because they are available at any given time, any time. And they don't eat up your time. In fact, they give you more time. To do what? I don't know. I mean, that's the dilemma, right? Because it's when you have time that leads you to give in. It's when you have time and you don't know what to do with it that leads you astray. But it's nice to get more time. It's nice to know that you can acquire more time. And all it takes is having some restraint. All it takes is having some focus. And you don't even need to think of it in terms of, you know, the bigger picture necessarily. Because when you have a bigger picture as to the life you want to live, you don't have to obsess over it all the time. You, you want to get to a point where the bigger picture is just you, where it's just ingrained in you. And that gets into the subconscious that gets into the idea of embedding certain thoughts, certain goals into your subconscious. Because when you embed things into your subconscious, you no longer have to consciously think of them because they kind of lubricate everything you do. And that's what it is to have some sort of purpose. And it's difficult because we hear the word purpose and we think that that has to mean a specific thing. That has to be a measurable material goal. To have a sense of purpose. Oh, I want to do this. I want to feed the hungry. I want to create beautiful things. But my own experience with purpose is that it's almost impossible to define. It's a feeling. Meaning and purpose to me are more of a feeling than a thought that I can reflect on. And I think that I'm very early in on the process of that. Speaking of processes, I feel that I'm only beginning to understand what that is. But it's still what I feel. It's the sense that I have for it is that purpose isn't something you can intellectualize or even explain. You can probably barely describe it. 
because it's personal, but it also seems to be something beyond you. And it's easy to sound like a crazy person when you talk about this stuff. But you should be willing to go there. Um, and that's, a, you know, that's where restraint comes in as well. When you are interested in these sorts of ideas, when you're interested in these sort of intangible forces that are a part of your life, it's very easy to want to talk to everybody about them, and you have to learn restraint with that. In the same way that you have to learn restraint when it comes to saying hi to people, lone women in the woods, maybe don't approach them, let them engage you. You know, you can learn that with any conversation. Some people don't want to hear about your bullshit, which is why it's great to have a show to talk about. <laughs> you know, it's great to have a little corner of the world where people have to deliberately seek it out if they care enough. But, um, yeah, the word of the day, resistance with a lowercase r. Don't get caught up in this capital R, backwards R, Toys R Us resistance. I mean, if you want to, if that's your purpose, go ahead. Because that's what happens when people get too caught up on having some sort of concrete material purpose is they become very susceptible to these movements and groups and causes. And not that you should never participate in those. Not that you shouldn't do the right thing if you feel that a group or a movement is doing something right. But those can easily hijack you. Those can easily take you over. And distort your view of the world. Because, you know, I think people are attracted to those ideas. Partly because they don't entirely have confidence in the life they are living. And I know that's a, that's a big jump there. But I get that feeling from people I know who have been very susceptible to groups. They seem to lack a certain confidence... And they're looking to gain that confidence through some sort of group reinforcement. And this isn't some like, oh, they're sheep, the ship, the ship, the sheep, ship, ship. Uh, you know, this isn't coming from that place where I think that, oh, everybody who participates in a group is a ship. Do you mean sheep? No, I'm, they're a ship. Um, I'm not coming from that place with it. I just know that people are highly susceptible in those situations and it gives them some sort of concrete purpose but I don't know that they've actually developed an inward purpose which if they truly want to be a part of a movement or a group you'll be a much greater asset to that group if you've already developed an inward purpose you'll be a stronger link in that chain you know, because the thing is, if, if you're a weak link and you think you're attaching yourself to a stronger chain, the fact that that chain would even allow you as a weak link to join it is a good indication that there might be a lot of weak links in that chain you're joining. And it might just seem strong because it's long. A long, weak chain. But if you've developed some sort of I mean, it gets back to, like, Groucho Marx quotes. Here we are, you know, seven years of doing this show, and it culminates in a Groucho Marx quote. Like, I wouldn't want to have any group as a member who would have me as a member. But it is that sort of idea, where if you are lacking self-confidence, not that there's anything wrong with that, not that there's anything wrong with being insecure, but if you are lacking self-confidence, and you have not gone through some sort of process of disciplining yourself in the most positive sense. If you've not developed self-discipline and through that developed self-confidence and you are looking to participate in something that finds that even remotely acceptable, you should be questioning the strength of that thing. You know, if, if something is willing to accept you knowing that you are yourself a weak link you should question what that thing is that you are joining. Whereas if you've done the work, you know, again, everybody loves to say do the work. I'm using it now. 
But if you've done the work, which is to say the work on yourself, the inward work that will strengthen you and give you some sort of indefinite but nonetheless feeling of purpose, it might be indefinite, but you have a sense for it. If you've developed that, if you've cultivated that strength, you can go into any situation with confidence and not just bring that confidence, but to know that that thing that you are walking into, that thing you are participating in, it's welcoming you in part because it wants confident people. It wants strong people. It wants disciplined people. And nothing can stop that. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave This golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can 